There's always this tear-jerking, feel-good story. And all the hoopla kind of goes away, and they tell you the story of a coach or a player or a fan that's either had a, a desperate illness or a family situation that was bad. And so they go on. I don't know how long it is, but it just kind of brings everybody to tears. And then they go back to the game stuff. And so that's one of Jana's favorite parts. We kind of like the whole thing. What I want to do today is we talk about what's happening at what we call Palm Sunday is to look for the story that doesn't fit all the hoopla, okay? I want you to pay attention. Who? Just think about this for a second. On a, on a day like today, we can get so wrapped up in the palm branches and the hosannas and forget to look at Jesus, Okay? This is Jesus coming to his city, coming to Jerusalem as king. And I want you to see if you can pick it out. I think it'll be obvious, and if not, I will get to it by the end. But I want you to think as we read this, not about the branches and the geography. I want you to think, what is Jesus doing right now? What is he feeling right now? What is it like for him in this situation? So read with me. It'll be again on the screen, but keep your Bibles open because I want to show you a few things around this passage. Luke 19, starting verse 28. After Jesus had said this, we'll go back and figure out what that was. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the, on, the, on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole town I'm sorry, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, embankment against you, and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's pray. God, let us get past all the hoopla, all the ceremony, and let us look at you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this has been, as you can already sense, I think, a different Palm Sunday for me. This is one of those things like Easter and Christmas that we do every year, and you start reading, and you fill in the blanks in your mind. One thing you may have noticed right off the bat, in Luke's account of Palm Sunday, there are no palms, okay? And there's not the word Hosanna there. So did what we just do, was it wrong? No, it wasn't. It's found in the other Gospels. But Luke is writing for a particular purpose to a particular audience 
And he's a Gentile, and he's probably writing to, to less Jewish people at the time, and so he's not worried about some of the words and some of the things that we're familiar with. But I think he focuses on the right person, the right I, important thing is Jesus Christ. What's going on here? So let's break it down. Point one I have is the timed entry. This was no mistake when this happened. Um, some, and you could go Google this this afternoon, I don't want to spend my time on it, but if you go back and read Daniel chapter 9, for instance, there are many that believe that to the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was a, it was a fulfillment of a prophecy of Daniel some hundreds of years earlier. And so this is, this is not accidental what's happening. It's something that Jesus, I think, resolutely set out to do. It's the time of the Passover. It's, we're, we're going to know by next week he's going to be crucified as the Passover lamb. But it's a, it's a timed entry, meaning this is set up on God's timetable. The first thing I have under point, that is point A, a directed parable. If you were here on Wednesday night, if you were a youth or an adult at Bible study Wednesday night, we covered this. And so I'm going to fill in a, a little less detail with you all, but Wednesday night we looked at this a little bit more. When it says in verse 20, after Jesus had said this, well, a good question to study your Bible is, well, what did he just say? What's leading into this? And I want you to go back to verse 11 in chapter 19. Jesus tells a parable that I referenced last week about um, servants that received an amount of money and one of them just buried it and didn't do anything with it. And there was this whole parable about the 10 minus. Well, he's also within that parable talking to the, to the Jewish people. He's talking to the nation of Israel. In verse 11, and I'm going to skip a few little verses here and there, Jesus went on to tell, there was a, something else, a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So there's this great expectation that the kingdom of God is going to show up on earth. For the Jews, it meant overthrowing the Romans. Okay, they, it, they were under the control of the Roman government and they thought the Messiah was going to come establish the kingdom by destroying their enemies. Verse 12, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king in return. So this is a story, a picture of what's happening with Jesus. And, but it says in verse 14, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Okay? The heading in the NIV is, over Palm Sunday is, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. You need to understand, there's a lot of people there that hate him and do not want him to be their king. Okay? That's the, this is the, he had just said this portion of this. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. And then jump down at verse 27. Bring my enemies who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Okay? Pretty gruesome, not cute little kindergartners with palm trees. This is the parable Jesus has just told. Okay? We didn't have them come in with, you know, I don't, I don't even want to say it because I get myself in trouble, but gory stuff about, but that's the context here. Jesus is walking headlong into, for the first time in really his ministry, saying, I am that king. And you've got a crowd of people there that expect him to overthrow Rome. He doesn't come like that, but that's their expectation. Those that do want him to be king want him to be a different type of king than he's going to be. B is a direct path. Verse 28 goes on to say, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading this. 
It is not the crowds picking him up on his shoulders and whisking him into town. He's going ahead of them. He's heading to Jerusalem all the way back in chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. This is where Luke is very specific. There's a verse there, uh, verse 54. I'm sorry, not 54, but he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's verse 51. And when he said that to his disciples, he was like, he was said, I'm heading there. This, this is the showdown. This is coming. And they asked the question in that setting in chapter 9, are you going to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? They're all on board if it means he's going to ride in there and just start letting heads roll. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. But he set out for Jerusalem. When Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, he says he lays down his life for a sheep. And he says, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. There's nothing accidental here. This is a direct decision by Jesus to head into what the people think is a reigning king and what he understands is going to be a crucified king. Okay. Thirdly, a donkey procured. Verse 29, as they approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Let me give you a few little pointers of this little verse. One, Luke really slows down now. If you think of the way we read our Bible, sometimes you read one verse to the next and it's like 10 years in between those two things, right? Or a week's gone by or whatever. Most of the Gospels, when it comes to the last week of Jesus' life, really slow down. And what Luke is telling, he's almost going step by step with what Jesus is doing. It's like we've, we've entered slow motion now, okay? He went to this city and then this town and then he's heading to the Mount of Olives and then it just kind of slows down. And fortunately, years ago, I was able to go to Israel. Let me explain to you just the geography for a second of the Mount of Olives. It's on a hill east of Jerusalem. And the the best way I can describe it for you, those of you that live in Smithville, the new price shopper, you know where the pharmacy is on the back corner? If you sit back there in a vehicle, just trust me, this is true, and you watch the sun go down, you will see a little valley to Cedar Lake Estates. And it's sometimes those beautiful sunsets, that's a neat little visual thing, okay? That in my, if I'm remembering right, is about the distance. Now, I might be off by a few feet, but it's about the distance from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem, which would have been gleaning with, with the sunshine of gold and, and, and polished stones and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus is just across that valley on the Mount of Olives. When I was there, it's and another thing. See this middle section here? Maybe one chair over, but that's as wide as the road is, okay? Don't think Chiefs Parade. Don't think, you know, remember, Royals had a parade too. Don't think those things. Think this narrow alleyway with walls and doorways. And if you go there, at least when I was there, you could rent a donkey to walk down the very street that Jesus was put on a donkey, okay? And so that's the picture. But here's what's, I think, most important. If you want to turn there, you can. But back in Zechariah 14... Here's what, again, was written hundreds of years earlier. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather the nations to, uh, to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked. The women raped. Half the city will go into exile. And it just goes on and on and on. And then it says, the Lord will be the king over the whole earth. And on that day... There will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. Back in Zechariah chapter 9, there's this passage. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. 
See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This is all prophetic. This is, this is, this is God's Messiah coming at just the right time from the right location on the right animal to fulfill all these things that God said he was going to do. So back to our passage, if you look at verse 29 at the end of it, he sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. There's significance to that too, but this was not some trained animal. Untie it and bring it here. Okay. Think grand theft donkey right now. Okay. You don't just go take somebody's donkey. That'd be like jumping in a, you know, a vehicle and just taking off with it. Some think Jesus may have prepared this in advance. He may have. I don't know. But he says, go take it. And if somebody asks you, this is what makes me think he didn't. If anyone asks you what's going on, why are you t- untying it? Say the Lord needs it. It plays out that way. But the donkey, it sounds like he's throwing his weight around. I think God just is working very humbly, riding on a donkey as a king. He's not on a huge stallion. And he's just working, and, and there's, I could preach a whole sermon on, listen, if the Lord says it's his, it's his. Whatever you're holding on to, and if the Lord needs it, he needs it, and you give it to him. Well, verse 32 then says, those who were sent ahead and went and found it just as he told them. God's in control of all this. As they were untying the colt, sure enough, it's older owner asked them, why are you untying the donkey or the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to, John, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. They made a makeshift saddle for him, right? So that's the first point. This was all time. This was part of God's timetable. Secondly is the triumphal entry. And this is the part we know, we're familiar with, the pageantry of it. So point A, I have the red carpet. Think of it this way. Why are they throwing branches? Why are they throwing coats down on the ground? They're rolling out the red carpet for their king. That's, that's what they are intending to do. That's what they believe is going on. So verse 36, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Again, no palm branches in Luke's account. There are palm branches in John's account, just so you don't have to freak out about that. Matthew and Mark mentions branches, but not palms. So I've just solved all that for you, okay? Here they're throwing their coats down, their, their cloaks. They're, what they're, again, is just rolling out the red carpet for him. They're, they're trying to prepare the way for their king. Point B is the rejoicing crowds. And so we have in verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, that was that little narrow way I was telling you about, the whole crowd, and catch this, of disciples... So just like any crowd, there's some there that are supportive, there are some that are followers, there are some that are antagonistic. He's, Luke is now saying there are some of his followers here who began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Their king is finally getting there, right? But look at what it says, Luke tells us, for all the miracles they had seen. Jesus, in John's account, had just basically healed uh, Lazarus. You remember Lazarus is from Bethany. And they had just seen a man raised from the dead. And they are thinking, here comes the Messiah. He's coming. Now, here's where I'm going to kind of diverge and we're going to get our attention off the pageantry for a second and think about what's going on. There's people here who have great expectations that Jesus is going to just rock the house. He's going to get rid of the Romans. He's going to heal all their sickness, all their disease. And sure enough, and I would be too, they are joyfully praising God with loud voices because all these miracles are just starting to happen. 
And they say, it says in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, there's no hosannas there. Hosanna means God save us. Our Lord save us. I don't know why Luke doesn't record that or not, but he says no hosannas there. They certainly said it. The other gospels say that, but Luke's not focused on that. And the second part of this verse kind of jumped at me. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus was welcomed to earth, remember, by the angels saying similar things. But they said, like, peace on earth. Here they're saying peace in heaven. And it just dawned on me, there's no peace on earth until Jesus makes peace and returns to the right hand of God. And so you have all this play out. They are quoting Psalm 118, the relevant verses there, 25 through 29. Psalm 118 says, Lord, save us. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. They're singing that psalm. It's part of the Passover. It's part of the expectations that day. But point C is the righteous concerns. And by this, I don't mean these are good concerns. I mean what the self-righteous people were thinking. Because while the crowds of disciples were rejoicing, it says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees were very religious. As Kelly said earlier, they were righteous. They kept the rules. They also were very arrogant in the sense that they thought that's why they were right with God, and they looked down on anybody who didn't do that. And so first of all, you have the expectation of those that think Jesus is going to come in and just destroy everybody, right? And now you've got the expectations of the Pharisees are saying, you need to fall in line, and you associate with sinners. And we're afraid if you make too much of a noise that Rome's going to kind of crack down here, and right now we've got it pretty good. And by the way, we know you're claiming to be God and you're doing things. You're claiming to be king. That's blasphemy. So these guys are telling him to shut up, okay? Tell his disciples to, to shut up. I think, though, the real thing was just their struggle for power and their, and their pride. Back in John 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the, the heading there is the plot to kill Jesus. They understood that people were coming after him, and that was not going to set well. And so they figured out a way to kill him, which I think is remarkable because Jesus was not in hiding, but it wasn't his time yet. He is like, he's walking just headlong into that right now. They are actively trying to kill him, and he's going to come in on a parade, okay? So that he's walking into this. Point D, the rocks cry. Verse 40 says, I tell you. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, there's several verses and several psalms you could go to in the Bible about God is going to get praise. Jesus deserves praise. The rocks will cry out. The heavens declare the glory of God. There, God will be praised. We as his creatures, uniquely and sadly, are the only ones that can choose not to praise God, and we do it all the time. But what he's saying is if you shut them up, the rocks are going to cry out. Jesus had mentioned this, by the way, I think in the setting, which we'll get to in a second, that the very stones of this temple that you think are so important, they're going to be destroyed in a few years. Those rocks are going to give testimony that I was your king and you missed me. John the Baptist, too, would 
talk about religious people, Pharisees and Sadducees came to him and instead of welcoming them, they wanted to be baptized. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from this coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, meaning we're just racially the right people or even religiously. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise out children of Abraham. And you might say, how could God bring life out of a stone? If you're saved here today, listen, you had a heart of stone. I had a heart of stone. God brought life into that. Ezekiel talks about Jeremiah. We were dead. We were no more alive to God than a rock on a driveway or on a hillside until God, sure enough, raised up children of Abraham. Well, point three and maybe I think I've already tipped my hand. This is the feel good and the feel bad story of the day. It's called the tragic entry. Everybody, it just dawned on me while while people are worshiping, Jesus is crying. I don't know if you've ever been in a setting where either you are going through something tough and everybody around you is happy, but you're not. Or maybe you've noticed people like that that everything's going on, but you notice somebody in the corner who's just not in on the on the party. That's the picture I have of Jesus. Yes, he's on the donkey. They're throwing his cloaks out. They're singing songs to him. But he's, he's crying. Look at verse 41. And point A is Jesus wept. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Jesus would say in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Remember that parable earlier? We do not want this man to be our king. The contrast here between the celebration of the people and the weeping of Jesus just stands out to me. We praise Jesus when we think he's fighting our agenda. When we think he's going to do what we think he ought to do. We praise him when he's on our side. What we don't understand is we need to be on his side. He is not, at this point, the king that's going to take care of all the bad things out there. He's the humble king that's going to die for us. And we need to, I think, see in this, that's the Jesus we need. See, we walk through life thinking, if God would just do this, things would be better. No, we need peace in here, that no matter what goes on out there. And so he's, he's weeping, and then what he says in verse 42, if you, and then these two, even you, I don't know if I should be disgusted the way I say it, or sympathetic, or whatever, these, especially the religious leaders, are going to crucify him. And what he's offering, even in the week before, is saying, even if you would accept me, you can have peace with God. No matter what you've done, he's offering that to you, you, even you. He says, if you had only known that on this day, what would bring you peace? See, they think it's military victory or political victory or religious stuff. No, it's Jesus Christ that brings us peace. He goes, if you would just know that I'm standing here before you, your opportunity for real peace is right here, right now. And I want to say to you today, folks, 
If you would just recognize what would truly give you peace, and I want to tell you, it's the same answer as it was then. Jesus Christ is your answer. But, he says, now it's hidden from your eyes. It was too late for them. They could have repented, but their hearts were so hard, they had rejected him. They were plotting him king. And, and the warning to us today is, today is your offer of salvation, but every time you hear it and let it pass, it's just one more layer that God got to cut through, and he can. He says, now you don't even see it. Your hearts are hardened and your eyes are blinded. I came across a, a, a commentary, an article about this a guy named Steve Thomason. I don't know anything about him, but he wrote it a year ago. And here's what he wrote. This is not a celebration for Jesus. The crowds don't understand. Jesus weeps over the city because he knows that very soon their violent attitude and their need to bring the kingdom of God through force will lead to their destruction. And his heart is broken. He says, Palm Sunday feels different for me this year. It comes after a year, and I will say two years or plus, of COVID isolation and severe political and social violence and unrest, and I am tired. The world is tired. It seems that all we know is hatred, fear, self-protection, self-justification, and violence towards one another. This year, I feel more like standing with Jesus and just crying. I want to cry out, save us from ourselves, O oh Lord. Help us to know what makes for real peace. Point B, Jerusalem's walls. Jesus goes on to say in verse 43, the, day, the days will come on you when your enemies will build embankments against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another. Within a generation that would happen. Rome would destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem. Everything the people had hoped for, a political change, went the exact opposite direction. Everything the Pharisees were trying to protect, their power, and their, they were out of a job too. Everything the crowds were singing that day came to nothing because the answer was Jesus and not in what they were looking for. It wasn't self-righteousness. It wasn't power. It was accepting the humble king. That's why he says with tears, and I want to say it to you, if you only knew that this was the day that could bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. And everything you think will bring you peace will come crumbling down someday. And so my final point is just wait. Because that didn't happen for 40 years. But verse 44 ends with this, because you did not recognize the time that God came to you. Jesus came and went. He rose again. We'll celebrate that next week. But those Pharisees thought they won. Many of the crowd that day thought, well, Jesus wasn't the answer. Let's look for the next political. In fact, it was their rebellion against Rome in AD 66 that led to the destruction of Rome or, or Jerusalem in AD 70. They continued on this path of we want to tear this place down and, and we want to be in charge. And so my question is to you, if, have you received him as your king and, or have you rejected him as your king? That's the question of the day. That's, that's what we're here for. I pray that you've received him as your king. I pray that you seek to follow him and his agenda, not your own agenda. We need him for salvation. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today salvation is being offered to you. My prayer all week has been that you would receive that 
and receive Jesus as your king. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you that it brings clarity um, to traditions and stuff that we have, that, that we're able to not just talk about things, but objectively look at what really happened that day. And I thank you, God, that we've had a few minutes to slow down and just focus on Jesus and just kind of drown out all the, the, the singing and all the palm branches and all the expectations and even all the tension that day and just focus on a weeping king. God, his invitation still stands today, and I thank you for that. It needs to be received. It needs to be remembered by many of us. God, the day is coming when you will not be on a colt, but you will be on a horse. And you will bring your kingdom and destroy all those who stand against it. But today is the day of salvation. God, we love you so much. Thank you for making a way for us to be with you. Pray this all in the name of and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.